We're uh, getting back into our series on Ephesians. Uh, If you have a pew Bible in front of you, I believe it's on page, someone help me out, 976, page 976 of your pew Bible. We're looking at Ephesians 1, 19 to 23 today. Ephesians 1, 19 and 23. And because it's it's been a while, I'm going to give a summary of where we are in this book so far. Uh, So for our reading of the text, I'm going to start in verse 15 and read all the way to 23. And then focus in on a couple key verses that will really set us up for understanding verses 19 to 23. So if you would, follow along with me in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we confess your lordship. We confess your headship over this church. Help us understand the beautiful truths in this passage. We pray, Lord, for any hardened hearts towards your gospel message, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would give them hearts that become enlightened to see the beauty and the value and the worth of Jesus. Oh, we pray for weary saints right now that are tired of being tempted with the same temptation over and over again. With dear brothers and sisters who are being, who are given into these temptations, we pray, Lord, that they would see that there is power In the name of Jesus and in the gift of the Holy Spirit, there is immeasurable power in him. Lord, we pray that you would convince them of this by your power. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is my intro, which really goes back to two weeks ago. And then we'll get into uh, the main points of the text, verses 19 and 23. Look back at verses 18 to 19. Look back at verses 18 and 19. This is what Paul prays and what I just prayed. He says, he wants them to know this. This is what the apostle wants the Ephesian church to know and he wants our church to know and he wants churches throughout the ages to know. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened... That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So we, uh, three weeks ago, we looked at this portion of the text and he says that he wants you to know three things. He wants you to know the hope that he's called you to, how rich your inheritance is in the saints, and then thirdly, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward who? Toward us who believe. And then we stop there. Because I think that this portion of the text is worth an entire sermon for our church. He wants us to know the immeasurable, you can't measure it. The greatness is bigger than you understand of his power toward us who believe. And then we see more specifically toward us who believe is found in verse 23. If you look there, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills on all. Sorry, in verse 22, um, to the church. So believers are called the church and this power is now given to believers. And the power that is displayed through Christ is also accessible to those who are in Christ. That's what he's saying there. And he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them this spirit of revelation and this knowledge of him. That is this knowledge of God. The church. God wants you to know God. And he's saying that through the Apostle Paul now. He wants you to, to know him. As mentioned in the previous sermon on Ephesians, he wants you and he wants myself, he wants both of us to know God in a way that weaves doctrine with affection. This is not, I want you to know these doctrinal issues. It's not zeal divorced from doctrine. In a sense, demons know the empty shell of belief or the empty shell of doctrine. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Or in the gospel of Mark, there's a man who's coming from the synagogue and he comes up to Jesus. He's filled with an unclean spirit. And he is the first one to rightly identify who Jesus is in the gospel of Mark. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. You see, demons knew the empty shell of knowledge but not the full experience of the knowledge of God. Demons, evil, heavenly, spiritual beings, unclean spirits, know a lot about the doctrine of God. So much so that, and even in Mark's gospel, the first one to rightly identify Jesus is a demonic spirit. So it's not mere facts about God. It's not the empty shell of doctrine that he wants you to know. But it's also not affection or zeal unattached from doctrine. It's adoration sprung from doctrinal knowledge. That's what Paul is doing here. This is not my agenda. This is what the Apostle Paul wants you and I to know in order to experience the power of God. 
It's valuing and cherishing the Lord Jesus. It's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And then he sold all that he had and he bought that field. Or it's like a man, Jesus says, who finds a priceless pearl and sells all that he has so that he can buy that pearl. It's knowledge of something so valuable that creates this worship and adoration and affection. And in that, the Lord wants you to know him and to dwell with him and to rejoice in him. That's what we said a few weeks ago. I quoted this and I'll quote it again from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He says this about the knowledge of God and what the knowledge of God is to produce. He says this, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? How can we turn our knowledge of, about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise of God. So you learn a divine truth about God. You make it a matter of meditation. You chew on it. You think about it. You dwell, about, you dwell upon it. That should lead you to prayer or to praise of God. That's what Packer says. That's a, that's a high task for those of you in seminary or Bible college because you get a lot of facts about God. Packer also says in Knowing God about the value for the Christian of knowing God, he says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective. Something with, which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? A Christian, you know God. You know God, and Paul's writing to Christians who know God, and he's praying that they'd know God more deeply. And in our text specifically, he's praying they'd know the, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And that's what we want to do. We want to dive in that right now and understand how great and how immeasurable the power of God is toward us who believe. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, very simple in how we do that. He says, you want to know the power of God toward you? Know the power of God exercised through Christ in particularly two ways. And this is our outline today. If you, if you need a heading or a, a question for you, um, how can we know God's power toward us? Know God's power toward Christ in two ways, in the resurrection and in the ascension. How can we know God's power toward us? Know God's power toward Christ in two ways. First, in the resurrection of Christ. And secondly, in the ascension of Christ. So look at verse 19. What is the immeasurable, 
immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When he raised him from the dead, that's the first thing he wants you to know about how powerful God was toward Jesus Christ. He wants you to remember and to stare at the resurrection. It's not hard to see how powerful the resurrection is. God's power was clearly seen when a a beat up, bloody Jesus hangs dead upon a cross. He's taken down. He's wrapped in linen cloth. And then three days later, life is breathed back into him. And he resurrects from the dead. You see, his disciples had such a hard time believing it because they saw him crucified. They saw him beat up, mocked, tortured. They saw him with nails through his limbs, a crown of thorn on his head, a spear through his side. They saw him give up his last breath. So you remember Thomas, old doubting Thomas. Thomas said he wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus. And Jesus does one better. He says, when he comes up to Thomas, he says, come here, Thomas. Put your finger here on my scars. And he saw his hands and he told Thomas to touch his side. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. See, there's power in the resurrection. Jesus was dead and then three days later he became alive. And so the question for us here, why does Paul want us to know the resurrection? What does that do for my faith? Yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here meeting on the Lord's day. How does the knowledge of the power of his resurrection empower us? It does it in a couple ways. We'll just talk about two. One, it gives us a confidence that we will be raised with Christ. Our physical bodies will not always be in tombs or they will not always be ashes. Revelation 20 verse 6 says this about those who are in Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. There's no power over the second death. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. So I think what the apostle is saying here is that. What he's praying, part of his prayer is that you may know the power of the resurrection that happened in Christ. And you may know that in Christ you have the same faith. That your body will not decay. It won't raise three days later, but on that great day when the Lord descends, when God answers that prayer of come Lord Jesus that we just sang about, that all those who are dead in Christ will rise with Christ and our bodies will be resurrected with the Lord. I'm so helped. I probably quote this once a year or if the, the few funerals that I've done here at Warnell Road, because my former pastor used to quote about once a year. It's by J.C. Ryland, and he's preaching at the funeral service of his friend Andrew Gifford. This is in 1784. And in a sense, he's talking to death. 
And he says this because he knew his friend Andrew was in Christ and that Andrew Gifford's body would one day raise when Christ came back to, pro- to claim his bride. He starts out talking to his friend. He says, farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors. Now he's talking to death. We will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors. At the mouth of this dungeon thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that that day, at that hour when this whole place shall be all nothing, but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Christian, that is your fate too. Death does not have the final say in you. And God wants you to know that. And he wants you to know that by looking at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, secondly, Christ's resurrection means that even now we are raised up with him. That's right. One day we will physically be raised up with him. But according to the scriptures, even now, because of the resurrection of Christ, we are raised with Christ. Meaning we don't have to succumb to the powers that tempt us. We have power that is greater than the powers of temptation on us. Greater than demonic forces, greater than unseen spiritual beings. And so when you feel the allure, the temptation of sin. When it's pleading with you to give in to sin. Consider the resurrection of Jesus. I wonder if you do that in your fight against sin. Do you consider that Jesus rose from the dead? That's often how the resurrection is meant to help the believer in this world. In the resurrection, you are seated with Christ above the heavenly, in the heavenly places. Above the powers that tempt you into sin. So in the resurrection, because Christ rose, you can say when you're tempted in sin, you can say, I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. You have no power over me. Do you talk to demonic forces when you're tempted with sin? Do you fight like the victory's already won? Are you convinced? Oh, dear Christian. In your fight against sin, look to the resurrected Lord Jesus and know what he says about you because you are in him. The victory is won. You don't have to succumb to the evil forces that often tempt you in sin. You are above them because Christ is above them. Not because you have any merit or any power, any winsome workings of yourself, but because of Christ. So talk to your temptation like that. Preach to yourself. I'm dead to sin, alive in Christ. This has no power over me in Christ. Oh Lord, help me. I believe, help my unbelief. Dear brother, when you are tempted with pornography, do you fight like this? Or do you fight like a weak, dilapidated soldier who doesn't know the great armor that he has in Ephesians 6? 
The resurrection is supposed to empower you to fight like a good soldier. Believe these words, dear brother, dear sister. Herman Bovink says that the resurrection is the amen of the father upon the finished of the son. The amen of the father upon the finished of the son. Know what power you have. Look to the resurrected king. There's other ways to fight sin, but here's one way. If you're not yet a Christian, I wonder how you think about the resurrection. I wonder how you explain the events post-resurrection. So all the events leading up in the first century about the expansion of Christianity. How do you explain the faith of Thomas? How do you explain the courage that Peter has after he sees the resurrected Lord Jesus? How do you explain that each apostle, according to church history, was martyred for their faith? Friend, turn from your sin and see the crucified Christ who loves sinners to the point of death on a cross. Enough to absorb the wrath of God for sinners. And then look to the resurrected Jesus. Who reigns and rules and offers salvation to anyone who comes to him. Come and see Jesus with, his, with the scars in his healed hands. You will see him as true and beautiful and worthy of all allegiance and praise. If you're not yet a Christian, let me encourage you. After the service, go home, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or, 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 or even better than that, look to Psalm chapter 16 and see the prophecy that God would have a holy one who never sees corruption, whose body never decays in the grave. Then jump to Acts chapter 2, see Peter preach that boldly, that this is Jesus, that David, the psalmist, was talking about 700 or so years before. And then read the application of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, secondly, we see that God wants us to, yes, first know the power of the resurrection, but secondly, the power of Christ's ascension. The power of Christ's ascension. Look at verse 20 there. So he rose from the dead and then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul here is using the Old Testament to prove his point. He's rooting his theology in the scriptures. And so he goes to Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 110 verse 1, which says this. The Lord said, or Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so he takes that right hand imagery, God's strong hand, his mighty hand, and he attributes that to what happened to Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter takes up Psalm 110 as well, and he does expositional preaching for us. He tells us what Psalm 
chapter 110 means. And so chapter 2 of Acts, starting in verse 32, this is what Peter says. He says, he's taught after, the, after Pentecost, he's opening up the scriptures, he te- he's preaching the gospel, and he says this in 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We've all seen the resurrected Jesus, he says. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Here's where he quotes Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in the ascension, Peter is preaching and he wants them to know that God has made them both Lord, the one who rules, who has a rightful place at at the right hand of God, and the promised Messiah. This is Jesus whom you crucified. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father, that is the powerful arm of God. It's a poetic way of saying this is God's mighty arm that stretches forth and works. This is the Lord of hosts who works in this world. So Isaiah 62.8 says the Lord is sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Colossians 3 carries this theme of God's right hand and says in 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, there's that resurrection language again, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the powerful side of God. When Jesus is arrested, he's being mocked by the chief priests and the scribes and they ask him if he's the son of God. And Jesus says this, from now on, The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Paul, being the theologian that he is, he wants you and I to know that the right hand of God is a seat of power. So look to the ascension. But then he gives two more aspects of the ascension. I tried to break this up in four different aspects, but really in the ascension you see two things I think Paul breaks up. These are the two subpoints of the last point. Okay, the last point is already ascension. And then we see the power in Christ conquering and the power in Christ's headship. And they all occurred in the ascension of Christ. So verse 22 of Ephesians 1 says, And he put all things under his feet. So he's seated at the right hand of God. And now all things are subjected. All things are under his feet. That's another way of saying that now Jesus has dominion over all things as Lord. This is the domain of Jesus. All right. Let's do a little theology here. Don't tune out when I say that. Someone told me recently, hey, when you say that, I just can't help but tuning out. Okay, I'm sorry. Come back. Check out Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So dominion is given to man. In Genesis 1, most of us know what happens in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Man messes up his dominion, his rule. He's given this responsibility. So all throughout scripture, you're kind of waiting for this new man to reclaim this dominion. And that man is Jesus. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 5 to 10, takes this idea of dominion, of lordship, of all things being put under, subjected under the Lord's feet. And the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Keep Genesis 126 in your mind. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's true, right? We just pray for the Uyghur people who are being persecuted heavily by the Communist Party of China. So at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death For everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The Lord Jesus has dominion and has taken it back from Adam and all the sons of Adam who have taken dominion and sinned against God By not keeping dominion, by not ruling well. Jesus never rebelled against the Father. Jesus became the perfect Son of Man, the Son of God, by being obedient to the point of death on a cross. And through his suffering, he provided salvation for many sons. So now, here we go, now he is the conquering one. He became low for a little while. And now he stands as the conquering one. So now we see that there is power in Christ conquering. Understand this. It might look like Christ isn't conquering. And in a sense, he has not. His, his name is not fully displayed over all the earth. But he is above all heavenly beings. And and verse 22 of Ephesians 1 says that he has put all things under his feet. And so we look forward, as Revelation 6 says, about him who conquers. Revelation 6 says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. 
So he rules, all things are in subjection under him, and one day we're going to see it clear as day. He comes on a white horse to conquer, to take away all who are doing evil, all sons of Adam who have rebelled against the king. Not just communist China, not just the Chinese Communist Party, but also all who are evil in the West, in the Far East, in South Asia, in Central Asia. He comes to conquer all who rebel against his rule. And so what is today then? Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to repent before Revelation 6 becomes fully true, before we see it before our eyes. And so are you or not yet a Christian? Let me urge you that today is a day of salvation. Come meet the Lord Jesus today when he offers forgiveness before you meet him in judgment. This is the plea of Jesus in the Bible. And this is the plea that I'm pleading with you now. Come to the Lord. He is gracious and offers salvation for all who will come to him. The Puritan Richard Sibbs says this about the conquering King Jesus and about the day of judgment. He says, this promise is accomplished at the last day of judgment when we shall sit with Christ as kings ruling with him and as judges of the 12 tribes of Israel, judges of the world. So he's saying that we too are conquerors. We are here conquerors of the world, the flesh and the devil. But then all things shall be put under our feet. And this should comfort us in our sufferings under wicked men. For at that time, those that now triumph over, all, over us shall be trodden down as dust. And again, we should learn not to fret to see the prosperity of the wicked. They are but flowers of a day's continuance. Who envies the estate or happiness of a base person that in a play acts the person of a king? This world is no other than a stage play. Let the wicked be in ever so great a place. He must return to his rags. And the good man, though he acts the part of a beggar here for a while, he shall be a king hereafter forever. And in the meantime, God considers him as dear as his dear son. We are sons and daughters of God in this wicked world. Christ rules. Everything is under subjection to him. And one day, I think this is what Paul is getting at here. He wants you to know that all things are in subjection under his feet because one day you too will rule with Christ and all, you will rule with him and all things will be under your feet as well. And so brother and sister Christian, persevere with confidence. The wicked may have their day. Those who oppose Christ, those who mock you, those who kill Christians in Syria, in China, those who killed Christians in England in the 19th and 18th century, centuries, they had their day. They won't always have their day. And so vengeance is not yours. It is the Lord. And you will be with the Lord on that day. In the meantime, we persevere with confidence that one day Christ will come and conquer clearly. That we'll all see he'll conquer all things 
as he has already put things under his feet. And we're just waiting to see that more fully occur. The second aspect of Christ's ascension. And our last point today is Christ's headship. Christ's headship. Look at verse 22, the second half. So he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm just going to read that again. He gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. New idea here in Ephesians. The fullness of him who fills all in all. We're going to be speaking about this frequently throughout the book of Ephesians. But just so you have an idea of how the the theology behind this, how this is played out. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul here is talking to wives and he's talking to husbands. And he says that a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. And then he says in 28, look at 528. So he says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Here's the, so that, or the, because rather, because we are members of his body. So the idea of Christ having a body here on earth is first mentioned in chapter 1. And it's carried out in a couple places in Ephesians. And it's explained in Ephesians chapter 5. We are members of his body. It's said again. And he uses marriage to illustrate this point. Just as a man in marriage is tied to a woman in marriage... Think Genesis chapter 2, verses 20, verse 23. When Adam beholds a woman, he said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam beholds his bride Eve and says, We're not two separate beings, but we're married and now we're one flesh. When you're married... You can't have a wonderful, happy day and your bride have a horrible day without being affected by that. You might have friends that have horrible days and you'd be less affected, but you can't. It doesn't work. When you're one flesh, you start to think the same way. You start to feel the same way. And God is saying that Jesus, in the same way that a husband is joined to his wife, is joined to his church. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church. And he says here that Christ is the head of the church and the church are members of his body. 
Okay, we'll get more into that as we go through the series. But the question for us now is, well, how is this supposed to encourage me in my faith? How much, how, how tethered, how tied is Jesus to his body? Flip over to Acts chapter 9. Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul wanted to imprison those who were following Jesus. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So how tethered, how tied is Jesus to his people? He's so tied to his people that when he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting them, my followers? He could have said that that would be true. He says, why are you persecuting me? And he says it twice. You see, Jesus is the head that can never be severed from his body, his church. He will never lose his bride. He gave up his life for his bride. He came to earth to gain his bride. And now he has his bride, the church. And so the Apostle Paul wants you to know this. That he's filling all in all. That he gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, the head is the mind, the brains behind the operation. It tells the body what to do. And so all faithful churches don't dismiss the head, but they look to their head, the Lord Jesus, to say, Lord, what should we do? And in the word of God himself, Jesus gave us his word. And we look to his word and we say, Jesus, how do we follow you faithfully? And then he teaches and explains us through expositional preaching, just like I'm doing now. So that we might not err to the right or err to the left, but we might stare at the head who is Christ. And as his body, we might go out and expand his kingdom, the Lord Jesus in his church, who is all in all. And what this is saying and what Paul keeps getting at in Ephesians is that you want to know about Jesus, you want to know about the plan of salvation, the mystery of God, look to the local church. That's where it's displayed. That's where it is displayed now that Christ is ascended. And so just two points of application for us, dear church. Let's keep Christ as the head of Warnell Road Baptist Church. Let's keep Christ as the head of Ronald Road Baptist Church. Or you might be saying, oh, Mark, that, of course. Why wouldn't Jesus be the head of a church? If you know anything about the 
almost 100 years this year history of this church. That headship is what started Warren Road Baptist Church. But after a while, the headship of the Lord Jesus became assumed. It was presumed upon, oh yeah, yeah, of course we know the gospel. Yeah, of course we think Jesus is the head of the church. And they gave lip service to Jesus being the head without looking to what Jesus has said. And they slowly became doing their own thing. By the grace of God, there's always been a faithful remnant. Even a couple believers who didn't want to separate from the teachings of the Bible. But for decades even, this church was not submitting to the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even at one point in this church's history, there was a universalist pastor in the 90s. Who believed that you can get to God by any way. And so World Road, it might sound like a basic application, but it is an important one. Let us never be severed from the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. One way that we can do that is by commending and voting on elders who regard the scripture as a word of God. Who believe it, who meditate on it. And so praise God that today at our membership meeting, we're going to be putting forth, uh, we're going to be telling you that uh, Jeff Chang and Chris Atkins, we're going to be talking with them in discussions about being elders at Warnell Road. I praise God for the, the work of Matt Obenhaus and Andrew Evans. How in shepherding this church, they're not trying to concoct their own ideas about how to deal with things. But they're looking to the word of God. Praise God, Warnell Road. You have wise pastors. You desire to be led by pastors who look to God's word. That's how, you, that's how the flock of God can be cared for, protected, shepherded, and taught. Secondly, and last application, is we need to plant churches where Christ is the head. Again, you might think, well, of course, why wouldn't we plant churches where Christ is the head? Quite simply, church, we need to look at what Christ has said about his church. What is a church? How churches are formed? What churches believe? And so I praise God. One of the fruits that you prayed for, Warner Road, is that when we went overseas to Central Asia, we got to talk with different workers in two different cities. And they love God's word. They love what God's word says about the church. And they aim to plant churches Based upon God's work. Praise God for that. And may we keep finding places to partner with. Where churches want Christ. Where, where missionaries want Christ to be the head of the church. Founded upon what his word says is a church. Well, church, there is so much power in God's word. That he says it's immeasurable. You can't measure it. You can increase your power a little bit, your, your PR, your personal record and power cleans or bench press or whatever. But then it stops, right? And then you start getting older. But the power of God is immeasurable. It is great. It is bigger than big and you cannot contain it. And that is a power that is extended to us who believe. Before I close us in prayer, Send, spend a few, and as the music team comes up, spend a few times, in silent, a few moments in silent reflection. And then I'll close this in prayer and we'll sing our last song.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us immeasurable power because of Christ's resurrection and ascension. We can have confidence in that. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us in this life. Lord, we thank you that you are, Lord Jesus, the one who was worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God, from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Let us be a church that believes that more fully. Oh, Lord, bless this church by your immeasurable power. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.